Thank you, Tim. You may be seated. Well, again, Happy New Year to you. Welcome uh, this first Sunday of 2013. It's also the Sunday of Epiphany. Uh, for those of you that didn't know, Epiphany Sunday, January 6th being the day of Epiphany. It is also the 12th day of Christmas. You know the song, you've sung it. Today is actually the 12th day of Christmas. Matt Garrison was right last week when he pointed out that Christmas Day is not the end of the Christmas season, but the beginning of it. The Advent season ends, a season of waiting and anticipating, but then Christmas Day, Christmas morning, He's here. God with us, Emmanuel. And then add 12 days, the 12 days of Christmas, and you land on January 6th. Well, Epiphany Sunday. Uh, Epiphany means appearance. It comes from the Greek word meaning to show forth, to display, to appear. And the Sunday of Epiphany is a day that the church around the world, across the globe, together focuses on the divine manifestation of God's glory through the incarnation. God's redemptive activity in Jesus. Well, on the Sunday of Epiphany, the, the Western church typically focuses on the visitation of the Magi, the three wise men, uh, looking at God's manifestation to the Gentiles. The Eastern church uh, typically looks at the baptism of Jesus. God's manifestation is the beloved Son of God to the whole world. And so this morning, we're going to take an Eastern approach. We're going to consider Jesus' identity as confirmed at his baptism. We'll be in Luke chapter 3, uh, verses 21 to 23. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's found on page 859. If you were with us last week, uh, we were in Luke chapter 1. We focused on uh, God's provision of, of hope to Elizabeth, wife of Zechariah, cousin of Mary. God's provision for her. And today, our focus on Jesus who is baptized by Elizabeth's son, John. So Luke 3, verses 21 to 23. Uh, but let's pray before we hear God's word. <clears throat> we look to you afresh this morning, our God, our King, our Redeemer. You who have come and you who are coming back. We thank you for the gift of your word and that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you speak the truth of your gospel deep into our hearts that we might believe. And so, Lord, we would ask that you would do that once again this day through your word. So would you now open us to your word, your word to us, that we might see, that we might believe, and in seeing and believing that we might honor and worship you our God and King. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> now I invite you to hear the word of God from Luke, <clears throat> Luke chapter 3, uh, verses 21 to 23. However, I'm going to begin with verses 2 and 3 by way of context. 
The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. This is the word of God, and it is given to us for our good and for his glory. And so let's turn to it now. Well, here we are at the start, <clears throat> the start of a new year. In the beginning of a new year, often people take stock of their lives, uh, reflecting on the year that has just come to a close, looking ahead at the year that is now unfolding. And it's, it's always a good time to, to reflect, to ponder, to, to wrestle with those deep questions, those questions that are deep down in our souls. Who am I? Am I truly loved? Do I really matter? Uh, no one can escape these questions. Everyone wrestles with them. We may deny them, we may try to run from them, but for all of us, we are searching for the answer. Everyone. As one pastor puts it, we are most afraid of not mattering. That's what we're most afraid of, of not mattering. And so what do we do? We grasp. We grasp to matter. We, we grasp for significance, for importance. We grasp for identity. And ultimately what we are doing is we are grasping for glory. Grasping for a glory in and of ourselves. Grasping for a glory from the world around us. <clears throat> and when we seek to define ourselves in this way, when we seek to grasp glory through our, our acquisitions, those things that we have, through our accomplishments, the good deeds that we have done, through our appearance, the way that we come across to others. None of these bad in and of themselves, but when we seek to define ourselves apart from God's grace, we come up empty. It's an empty glory, or as the way the King James puts it, a vain glory. Our grasping from glory apart from God's grace, it's like grasping the air. You get nothing. You're left empty-handed, isolated, unable to actually answer those deep questions of life. Well, a glimpse at this reality <clears throat> can be seen in one of the, the all-time great sports rivalries and one of the all-time great athletes. Chris Evert, Martina Navratilova, two of the all-time greatest ten tennis champions, uh, men or women alike. Uh, phenomenal women. In fact, uh, Chris Evert won over 90% of her professional matches. No man or woman has come close to that. But then the sports rivalry between Chris Evert and Martina Navratilova, they played each other professionally in a total of 80 matches. Okay, a professional tennis career is not all that long. They met in tournaments 
80 times. 60 of those were in the finals. And 14 of those were Grand Slam finals. If you're familiar with tennis, Wimbledon, U.S. Open, Australian Open, French Open. So big time. But what really stood out to me is that for a period of 12 years, no one else in the world was ranked number one or number two except one of these women. Chris or Martina, always number one, always number two. But then tennis career comes to an end. And I appreciate this honesty from Chris Everett a few years after retiring from tennis at age 35, wondering, reflecting, beginning to, to wrestle, feeling an emptiness, and she spoke very honestly these words. I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been, de had been defined by my being a tennis champion, by being great. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It made me feel pretty and significant. It was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins. I needed the applause. I needed them in order to have an identity. Our desperate desire to matter. An identity crisis. Who am I? Am I truly loved? Do I really matter? Well, it's interesting to, to note, as you already heard this morning in our call to worship, uh, that great passage about Jesus, Philippians 2, it's, it's interesting to note that Jesus never grasps for glory. Never. His identity is challenged, for sure, throughout the gospel accounts. We see that, but we never see him have an identity crisis. He knows who he is and whose he is. Now, a story that probably most of you are familiar with, maybe not with all the details, but uh, at least some significant parts of it, the story of King Arthur. Do you remember when uh, young Arthur came to the stone with the sword in it? He reached in and he pulled out the sword. What did that do? That event revealed his true identity. It revealed him to be the true king. Well, here we are at Jesus' baptism. And it's really a sword-in-the-stone moment. In fact, a sword-in-the-stone moment for us. That we might see that, that, that His true identity would be revealed and confirmed before us. So with that in mind, hear again God's Word. Luke chapter 3, verses 21 to 23. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. You are my son. With you, I am well pleased. 
a powerful affirmation. The skies part, the voice comes and affirms Jesus. In these words of affirmation, before he even began his ministry. <clears throat> well, here we are in Luke 3. You're probably familiar with it. John is baptizing people in the Jordan River. Jesus steps into the water, is baptized by John. And then as we have read, Jesus was praying. The skies open up. The Holy Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove. And a voice from heaven declares, You are my beloved son. I am well pleased with you. As Jesus was praying, the heavens were opened. The heavens were parted. Luke, his account, just like the other gospel accounts, removes this curtain from heaven so that we might see how God views this man, Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. In bodily form like a dove. Now, it's important to remember that Luke, the gospel writer here, is a physician. He is very precise with his language, very careful in the words that he chooses. Uh, he, he wrote Luke, he wrote uh, Acts. And if you were to read this, this same account from the, the gospel writer Mark, it, you would see that it's a little bit different. Mark reports more the experience of Jesus' baptism. But Luke takes a more objective approach. He is... He's emphasizing the reality of the, the event, being logical in the way that he presents this. Thus he uses the phrase bodily form, more concrete, objective language than Mark. So he's probably more Presbyterian than Mark in that way. <clears throat> and this anointing reveals that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed one. In part, it's a, a royal anointing. Uh, revealing Jesus is the true king, king over all. And then we have a shift, a shift from sight to sound, from, from the visual to a voice. Not only do the heavens open up and we see the Holy Spirit descend on him like a dove in the form of a dove, but there's a voice, a voice from heaven. You're my beloved son. I am well pleased. Now, a voice from heaven. If we were to hear that today, for sure, it would be startling. And when you think about this case, this is a voice from above, one that is, is powerful in affirming a father to a son. Now, as I was thinking through this, I was reminded of when my children uh, used to be in the infant nursery, which wasn't too long ago. And if they got upset or unsettled, I was told by some of the nursery workers that one of the things they could do if I was up here speaking from the pulpit like I am now is they could go over to one of the speakers in the nursery room and turn the volume up, and there would be Dad, his voice from above. <laughs> and my children would hear that, and they would be comforted. And, and, and I was even told that it would sometimes put them to sleep, which is... <laughs> And I hope it doesn't do that to you today. <clears throat> but here we are, Jesus' baptism, a voice from above, confirms the identity of God's Son. Confirms the identity of Jesus. The Father proclaims, you are my Son, the Son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. 
As elsewhere in Scripture, we see God's soul delights in him. In this phrase, well-pleased, I am well-pleased with you, it means to take pleasure, to delight, to be glad in. God delights in his Son. Well, I I think of of parents with newborn babies. Uh, Most recently for us at Grace Covenant, we've got the Chins, we've got the Broughtons. And just to see parents with a newborn baby looking, this is their beloved child. And and, and their, their heart affection is full of joy and delight. And here we have a a delight and a joy, father of son, far beyond our wildest imagination. Well, his status is clear, and so is his place in the father's heart. This is the beloved son of God in whom God takes great delight. This is Jesus. Now, to shift gears in the text, there's something that may seem a bit odd. So, uh, take a look. The first phrase of verse 21. When all the people were baptized, Jesus was baptized too. Now, remember, as as I read when I first opened up uh, reading the text at the beginning of the sermon, remember John the Baptist is preaching a baptism of repentance... For the forgiveness of sins. So what is going on here? Jesus is baptized by John. Is Jesus a sinner now stepping into the water to be cleansed so that he can then go do the work that he has been sent to do? No, not at all. Here Jesus is not identifying himself as a sinner. Rather, Jesus is identifying himself with sinners. God with us. One commentator calls this the miracle of humility. God in a river with dirty people. Jesus in a river among sinners. Or the way Isaiah puts it, Jesus numbered with transgressors. Jesus himself is taking up the cause of humanity's need for cleansing. Our need for the forgiveness of sin. Identifying himself as the one who would take our sin upon himself. That we might be washed clean. And then Luke does something else significant here. Uh, Something that uh, C.S. Lewis alludes to in his uh, Chronicles of Narnia. In particular, I think of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And I'll swing back around to that in just a moment. But Luke, like like the other gospel writers, he he tells us three major things right here. John the Baptist's announcement of Jesus. Then we've got Jesus' baptism. And then we've got Jesus' testing and temptation in the wilderness. But Luke adds something here. Something that, that Matthew and Mark don't. Luke adds something between the account of Jesus' baptism and his temptation. And you'll find it in front of you, verses 23 to 38. He adds a genealogy. Now, I know that thrills you. I know that is a great excitement to know that I'm going to talk about a genealogy for a moment, because normally we just skip over that, right? The names are too difficult. Okay, well, hang with me, because this is important. 
And the question is why? Why would Luke do this? It's different than the other guys. Why does Luke put this in his gospel account? Well, the answer can be found at the end of the genealogy. It's the very, the very thing that C.S. Lewis alludes to when referring to the children in his stories. Do you remember that overarching phrase that Lewis uses when he's referring to the children as a whole? Anybody remember? Son of Adam. Sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. That's what's going on here. So that the answer why this genealogy, it's found in the last human name, the last created human on this list, Adam. Luke's genealogy begins, verse 23, by stating that Jesus was the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Haley, the son of Matat, and so on and so on, and then ends, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Okay, hang with me just a minute more. Luke traces Jesus' lineage all the way back to the first created human. And what he's doing is he's highlighting a contrast between Adam and Jesus. Adam, the first created son of God, he fails miserably, doesn't he? He falls into sin when tempted by Satan. And then we inherit that sin condition. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, did not fall when tempted by Satan. Lived a perfect life. Now, you may already know this, but in Hebrew, Adam literally means man. And Luke is presenting Jesus as the new man, the new Adam who brings new life. You see, Jesus is humanity's new representative. Okay, so maybe you're thinking, so what? So what does this have to do with me? Thanks for the genealogy lesson, that's great, but does this really have anything to do with me today? It does. And here's the point. When we, by faith, trust Jesus and receive his invitation to new life in him, we are baptized by him with his spirit. Through faith, and we sang about this earlier, we are joined to Jesus. We are baptized into his identity. Now, if you've read much of the Apostle Paul, one thing that he makes crystal clear is that Jesus is this new Adam. He is our new representative. And so the question is, is which Adam are you identified with? In the first Adam, there is condemnation. Because without Christ, we are condemned for our sin. Without Christ, we are identified. We are bound to that first Adam. But in Jesus, the new Adam, there is acceptance, there is forgiveness, there is new and transforming life. Because we are given Jesus' identity. In Christ, we are now the beloved sons and daughters. In Christ, you are a beloved son or daughter of God in whom He takes great delight, with whom He is well pleased, who He is so joyful to have as His own. The psalmist says, 
He rescued me because He delights in me. Zephaniah sings over us with joy. So have you put your trust in Jesus? Or are you still identified with the first Adam? Or if you have put your trust in Jesus, are you living in the reality of being a son or daughter of God? Are you living in the reality of God's love and acceptance? Or are you trying really hard to earn his favor? Maybe this uh, plays out in the way that you continually seek to prove yourself. Prove yourself to yourself. Prove yourself to others. Prove yourself to God. Maybe you're ridden with guilt or shame because of repeated failure. Time and time again, I just can't get it right. And so this might play out in a sense of worthlessness or despair. Well, regardless of what you think of this woman, I appreciate the very severe honesty of Oprah Winfrey in an interview. Oprah, you know of her. She's known worldwide, millions upon millions of dollars, highly successful. If anyone is a picture of someone that's achieved the American dream, Oprah is a great picture of someone that has achieved that dream. She seems to have it all. And yet Oprah confessed, I discovered that I felt worthless and certainly not worthy of love unless I was accomplishing something. I suddenly realized that I have never felt that I could be loved just for being, just for being me. Identity. Who am I? Am I Am I truly loved? Do I really matter? Now, maybe some of you have seen the, the recent box office relief, the, release, the, the new film uh, based on Les Mis, the film version of it. Uh, anyone seen that so far? A few of you. Uh, story that, is, as you may have heard, took uh, Victor Hugo 17 years uh, to write a story of amazing grace. Victor Hugo's profound line in this masterpiece. Life's greatest happiness is to be convinced that we are loved. Life's greatest happiness is to be convinced that we are loved. And in Christ, that longing is reality. Though more sinful and flawed than we ever dare believe in Christ. We are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. So why then do we struggle to believe that we are truly loved? Why do we struggle to believe that we matter? Why do we struggle to believe this gospel reality that is ours in Christ? Why? It's because we aren't convinced of grace. It's because we struggle so much to understand grace. Rod Wilson, a professor, pastor, counselor, 
speaks to, speaks to the beauty of God's grace. Uh, he, he says that grace is about the relationship between performance and acceptance. And which one precedes the other. Further, he notes that identity must lead and wash over performance. And that identity is one marked by prior acceptance. Acceptance before performance. Who you are before what you do. Who you are in Christ before the way that you live for Him. And it's all of grace. Loved and accepted through faith in Jesus. Free. Freedom, that's what this is about. Free. Free to no longer grasp. Free from from grasping for identity. From grasping to matter. And then free to live out the great commandment. Free to love. Free to love God. Free to love others. Because there's nothing else to prove. Nothing else to do for Jesus has done it all. On a cross, on our behalf, in love for us. In Christ, we are loved and accepted completely and fully. In Christ, we are the beloved sons and daughters of God. We are children in whom God takes great delight. And this is life's greatest happiness. Let's pray. O Lord, that you would convince our hearts. That you would convince our hearts of your grace to us in Jesus. Of your love for us. Oh, Lord, and where we believe there are places that we need help in our unbelief. So would you speak powerfully the truth of this gospel, that in Christ we too are your beloved children, that we too are ones in whom you take great delight. And Lord, we ask it that we might savor you, that we might bring you glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.